Okay, hello friends and welcome to the Chabura. Today we have the privilege of having Rabbi Chaim Angel with us for the final installment of Rabbi Angel's fascinating three-part Tanakh series exploring literalism, superstition, and archaeology. Today we will dive into controversies over the historicity of biblical passages and traditional commentary. We're excited to announce that this past Sunday, our publishing house came out with our first book on Pesach, which includes essays from Chachamim of the past, teachers of the present, and scholars of the future. Make sure to get yours in time for the Moed and stay tuned for all the other exciting titles we have lined up. If you missed the last installments of the shiur or would like to review, do not fear, as for all our shiurim, all our classes are recorded and are available on our website after. If you have any questions, please raise your hand or post in the chat box, and please God, there will also be time for questions at the end. With that said, thank you so much everyone for joining, and Rabbi Angel, it is a privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Here for the floor. Thank you again, Ohad, and thank the Chabura one more time for inviting me. It's it's been a, an absolute joy connecting with you know like-minded Chabra across the ocean. Even though I understand some people online are are not across the ocean, and that's also very good. It's been a wonderful thing, you know, participating with you and talking to Sina just about the vision. And he said that they're coming. He and Rabbi Dweck are coming at some point to these shores, so hopefully I'll get a chance to meet them over that. That would be great. Uh, so taking things literally. So we traditional types believe that God revealed the entire Torah and that the whole Tanakh is prophetic, meaning that it was prophetically inspired. So that sounds good. And among other things, that would mean that everything is true. And then the point of this year is, okay, what is true? Right? It's really, it really all comes down to that in terms of how that goes. Because if you take everything hyper-literally, you come to some very bizarre conclusions, and I don't care what your particular slant of religious orientation is, that just taking things hyper-literally uh, can become a real problem. For example, when you talk about walls that go up to the heavens, such as in source number one, right? Masecha Chulian is not dealing with the rationalist versus the mystic versus the whomever camp. It's just dealing with the fact that there's such a thing as poetry. And so Rabbi Ami said, the Torah spoke in exaggerated terms, as in the verse, the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. The sages of the Talmud, as we would understand, we have a word skyscraper. They didn't have that word yet. Uh, but they understand that a wall that goes up to the heavens means very high and probably strong walls. And everybody in ancient Israel understood that. Nobody thought, oh my goodness, they really build walls up to the sky. That's amazing. Nobody thought that. Okay, so... So innocuous comments like this open up what we all love to call a slippery slope. Because the very moment everybody can agree that this definitely should not be taken literally, well, that means, oh, well, what other stuff is at stake? Right? The moment you say one thing, okay, or Rambam makes it a lot more emphatic when it comes to God having body parts, or more specifically, very, very dramatically, not having any body parts. Okay, so what about all of those hands and arms and nostrils and shoes and all that other stuff and beards? Okay, uh, not only are you wrong if you take these literally, but then you're an idolater. All right, so that's a lot more dramatic than just being kind of silly if you think that these Canaanite walls really go up to the sky. Okay, so that's silly, but you're not a heretic. But according to Rambam, you're an idolater if you take this literally. Once again, the second everybody can accept that line, or at least nearly everybody has accepted that line, terrific. I'm all in favor of, of, that, of that stance. But the moment you do that on such a big theological issue, well, where does it stop? Because no longer can we be confident that every single thing is literal. And then 
you start moving into the realm, which I would think of as more subjective. Meaning in the first two examples, I pick no brainers because you always do that, right? You start with the easy ones, one in the realm of theology, philosophy, and one in the realm of poetry or whatever you want to call it, just how literature works, even sacred literature. But then there are fun stories where the rabbis have very major debates, such as, so can a donkey really talk even once? Or how about Mr. Snake? It doesn't even sound like a miracle in God Haven. Mr. Snake is schmoozing away with Chava as though this is perfectly normal. The Torah does not say that God opened the mouth of the snake, at least with the donkey down there, with Bilam, God opened mouth of donkey. Okay, so it sounds like miracle happening. We know this isn't normal. Here you go. All right, so that's a good one. How about angels that know how to eat lunch with Abraham and Sarah or know how to wrestle with Yaakov? Is that normal? Does that happen? If we took a time machine back, what would we see? So these are already subjective questions, meaning there's no one right definitive answer in our tradition. These are the types of things that rabbis debate very vigorously. So what ends up happening is uh, the rabbis have debates, which sometimes can get rather hostile, where basically here's a summary of all of these debates. Number one, you are a heretic for not taking something literally. Reverse side, you are a fool for taking something too literally. And a lot of the debates more or less sound like that. Okay, so what happens in this situation is you and I open up a microot, get a lot or whatever, a, a more than one commentary. I don't care which more than one you pick. And suddenly we have a problem because here we are revering the sanctity of the text and holding in awe these expositors of the text. These are the greatest commentaries and rabbinic thinkers who have ever lived. And they're busy calling each other idiots and heretics. And they mean it, These, the, the stakes can get run very high. And now what do you do? All right, so th that to me is an interesting question. Now, coming at it with my Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals hat, uh, one of the main goals that I have in every single aspect of teaching is besides religious connection, uh, allowing multiple avenues of entry into tradition, which sounds very lovely and all, but what it ends up coming down to is being able to navigate these controversies. Because this is really what, even though we think, oh, Torah unites the Jewish people in some sense. No, it doesn't. Uh, leaving alone Jews who are not connected to the Torah in the first place. But even among those who are connected to the Torah and believe in it and live a Torah lifestyle, the Torah is exactly what often divides us. Okay, so I'm focused in, on, on that zone. I'm not talking about people who are not observant or don't learn the Torah at all. That's, those are different shiurim. This is really about those who are committed, who want to engage with the Torah, who turn to our classical commentators as the ultimate guides, and who find that our guides are tearing each other to pieces and staking out territory where they say, this is beyond the pale of good faith. Wait a minute, this is Rambam, or this is a Barbanel, or this is Rashi, now what? But everybody's busy blasting each other to bits. So this year is about creating an approach that enables us to continue to learn both sides of the debate. And, and take them seriously, not simply choose one or the other. You, you have that right also. You may choose one side or the other. And often enough, we do make decisions like that in every religious aspect of life. You can't always choose all. But in this one, it's important that you shouldn't think that some of our greatest commentators are either heretics or fools. Right? So that's the goal of this. That's the agenda, so to speak. But I, I, it works well within our it works well within our traditional framework, and I'll set that out today. And then we'll have time for Q&A at the end, I'm sure. Oh, I was hopeful thinking is what I consider a commitment. I think it's important for there to be a dialogue. Uh, so anyway, it goes something like this. 
already in the good old days, people like Rav Sadia Gaon and Rambam uh, staked out territory where they agree that since the Torah is sacred, it all should be taken literally, but then they throw in a very important unless. And given the sheer size of the shoulders of Rav Sadia Gaon and Rambam, this automatically at least became part of the tradition. It doesn't mean that it's right, certainly not necessarily right every time, but it opens up a door to very serious dialogue. So sources two and three are, you know, good summaries of their views. They say different things in different places. Rafsadi Gaon says this in his classic Amunad Videa, which is his great work on Jewish thought and philosophy. So I declare, first of all, that it is a well-known fact that every statement in the Bible is to be understood in its literal sense. Okay, so it starts off like what you would expect a traditionalist to say, except for those that cannot be so construed. Okay, everything is literal except for those that are not literal. Okay, so what determines what can be interpreted as not literal? For one of the following four reasons. It may, for example, either be rejected by the observation of the sense, senses, what you and I would call empirical science. And you can see with your own eyes, that wall doesn't go up to the sky. Okay, that's an easy one. But obviously, Rosadigon has a much larger swath of territory under that rubric, where if it contradicts empirical science, since God wrote the Torah and God wrote science, God created the cosmos, they obviously are not in contradiction. Okay, here's another one. Or else the literal sense may be negated by reason. Okay, this is a more interesting category that leads to very forceful debates. It's one thing if it's empirical science that everybody can observe and it doesn't matter what your hashkafa, what your religious outlook is. It's quite another if it has to do with so-called logic. Because who's determining what logic is? And who's determining what is irrational? So this, that second category is what led to uh, some significant debates and, and controversies over the past thousand plus years since Rav Sadiga Owen said this. Okay, then the other two, uh, the entire traditional camp of commentaries will agree with the other two, which are, again, the literal meaning of a biblical statement may, may be rendered impossible by an explicit text of a contradictory nature, in which case it would become necessary to interpret the first statement in a non-literal nature. Okay, the Talmud does this on every single page. So the whole Midrashic tradition has always done this. This is what we call harmonization. Harmonization means since God is the author of all of the Torah, okay, so God should be able to make up his mind. So if you have two verses over here that sound like they don't agree with each other, that simply cannot be. So the standard two Talmudic strategies for dealing with this are either reinterpret one into the other, which is what Rav Sadiqa here is suggesting as a fair option, which it is a fair option. The other one is what we call hacha b'mayaskinah, that this law is talking about circumstance A, and that law is talking about circumstance B. So they don't contradict once you know the circumstances. They're talking about different things. Okay, so Rav Sadiqa says that that's another one. And here again, that third one has no controversy. The entire rabbinic tradition rests on that premise. And finally, likewise, rests on this one. Finally, any biblical statement to the meaning of which rabbinical tradition has attached a certain reservation to the, uh, is to be interpreted by us in keeping with this authentic tradition. A good believer in the oral law. The assumption is that if there is a tradition that goes all the way back, this is pre-Eitz Hadar. That pre-Eitz Hadar, fruit of a beautiful tree, or however you wish to translate that, is an etrog. It's not some other beautiful fruit. I don't care how beautiful. All right, there you go. That's the answer then. So in that case, you have an authoritative tradition. That's what it means. And even if the authoritative tradition contradicts what you thought the pasuk means, easy example, even though this may not be right, but let's, let's use it because it's easy. Ayin tacharayim, eye for an eye. Okay, rabbinic law says, rabbinic oral law says that that is monetary compensation. Running on the relatively fair but not fully foolproof assumption 
that ayin tachet ayin otherwise means poke the guy's eyeball out. Okay, so the oral law tells you, you have to reinterpret that verse. Can't mean that. It has to mean money because that's the oral law. Just to use an easy example. Okay. Cases three and four that Rav Sadiqa says here are perfectly uncontroversial. Any believer in the oral law would accept this, these two points. And in fact, the whole oral law does this all the time. Okay, so those two are easy. It's the first two categories that are more interesting. Contradiction of empirical sciences or contradiction of so-called reason. So we'll have to get back to specific examples in just a little while. Uh, even Ezra, by the way, in between Rav Sadia and Ramba makes the same point in the Sefer Hayashar. find this idea in a good source for you. So C9 has wonderful books, ideas. So one on Breshit quotes this even Ezra. So I hadn't seen this particular source inside. So I was happy to see it in this book. So very worthwhile books and with lots of, it's like a treasury of really cool quotations. So it's, it's really a lot of fun. Well, here's one such cool quotation. He says, if there appears something in the Torah which seems to contradict reason or to refute the evidence of our senses, then here one should seek for the solution in a figurative interpretation. Reason is the, the foundation of everything. All right, so that's pretty good. It's an excellent and dramatic way of making the same point that Rav Sadiego makes, that if it contradicts reason, you must reinterpret something. And Rambam makes the same point time and again through his interpretations in the Moran Vuchim, but he also makes this point in his treatise on resurrection. And that is source number three. I believe every possible happening that is supported by a prophetic statement and do not strip it of its plain meaning. I, <coughs> excuse me, I fall back on interpreting a statement. When he says interpreting, that means non-literal. Okay, that's interpreting. Only when its literal sense is impossible, like the corporeality of God. The possible, however, remains a statement. So Rambam, again, just makes the same point that Rav Sadia and even Ezra and many others make. Uh, not only can the Torah not contradict science, since God is the creator of the cosmos, but it also cannot create, uh, contradict reason, because God is the supreme rational being. So there's no way that God is going to say anything that is irrational. So if we find it to be irrational, then it has to be reinterpreted. Simple. Okay. <laughs> well, then come all the fights. So in, in modern terminology, by the way, even though it's terrible to impose uh, Protestant terms on anything of our tradition, let alone here, I'll impose them just for the sake of, of using labels, not because they're precise, but because they come in handy. Uh, in the Protestant world, a fundamentalist is one who believes in the absolute literal unerring word of God, and that every single passage in the Torah is meant as literal. And that's it. So Protestants don't have the wide tradition of, or at least fundamentalists sure don't anyway, uh, they don't have the wide tradition that Judaism has, because we have the Rav Sadias and the Ibn Ezra's and the Rambams who say you cannot be a fundamentalist in that, in that sense. Believe me, they were very fundamentalist in their own ways, not like that, not in the Protestant sense at all, which is what they're emphatically distancing themselves from. But there certainly were other great rabbis who were much more fundamentalist than the three that I just mentioned. And that's where the fights are actually going to come in. Simultaneously, you have another group of people, we use this in, in archeology span terminology today more than anything else, it ties back to last week, uh, called the maximalists. A maximalist is simply somebody who more or less accepts the literal reading of the Tanakh, unless there's empirical evidence from the world of archeology span that contradicts it. 
All right, so that's what maximalists are. So using these terribly crude terms on the people that we've talked about so far, of Sadiqa, Oni, Ben Ezra, Rambam, and all who follow them are what we would call maximalists. Meaning they accept that most of Tanakh is to, intended as literal and should be taken as such. They just have the unless, unless it contradicts either other psukim or rabbinic tradition, but more significantly for our purposes, uh, empirical science or reason, as they understand reason. Okay, so let's talk about this reason thing for just a minute. Uh, if you've never read the book of Hosea, you certainly should. There's a lot of hot hitting power, power punching things. Hosea is one of the treasar actually the first. He lived in the 8th century BCE. Uh, at least in America, Treasar is among the least studied of all of the Nevi'im and in general of Tanakh. You know, high school curricula typically don't get there besides the book of Yonah, which you know from the time you're four, but the other stuff forget about it. And most even high school graduates have never heard of most of the other Treasar, which is just too bad. They're A, they're wonderful and very relevant. And B, they're short and therefore much easier for these poor kids to master than say Yirmiyahu or Yeshayahu. So I don't know what anybody's thinking, but okay, I just work here. But for our purposes now, Hosea opens with a prophecy that you may want to not teach ninth graders, which is God commands Hosea to marry an Ashat Zanunim, which is widely understood by our Parshanut, not by everybody today. And I'm not sure that this is what it means at all, but we're not learning Hosea together. We're just talking about this controversy. Uh, the great commentators who are in play for today's shiur would agree that an Asia Zinunim is a synonym with a zonal or a prostitute. Okay. And the reason why Hosea has to marry her, by the way, it's not just he's single and looking for a wife and there weren't any quality women around, so he stooped to the bottom of the barrel, chas v'shalom. Uh, he had to marry this prostitute who would then cheat on him, have three kids, two boys and a girl who have uh, not good names to have when you are in kindergarten all foreshadowing the ultimate demise of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, where Hosea prophesies in the eighth century. And the point of a prostitute is to teach B'nai Israel in very graphic terms that just as this woman is cheating on Hosea, so too Israel is cheating on God, using the marriage metaphor between God and Israel. Okay, so that's what's going on over here. Okay, so that's the, that's the saga. And the way the story reads, it sounds like if we took a time machine back, we would see at their Shabbat table, uh, Hosea, this woman named Gomer, that was her name, and the three kids who, again, have not particularly great names, but they might have been wonderful children otherwise, and all foreshadowing doom and, and preaching the, the, the infidelity of B'nai Israel at that time. Okay, that's what it sounds like. You read chapter one of Hosea, you can read it a thousand times over, it will always sound like well, even Ezra and Rambam and Radak, among others, are terribly scandalized by everything I just said. They would agree that I'm right, that it sounds that way. But as far as they're concerned, this is logically impossible. Logically impossible. God never would do this. God never would force a prophet to marry a prostitute, period. There's no halakhic prohibition, assuming Hosea is not a Kohen, by the way. But, and we have no reason to think that he is a Kohen. But yuck, right? Poor Hosea is a holy man. He's a man of God. What's he, why would God do this? The answer is he wouldn't. Oh, the text says he did. This all was in a prophetic vision, period. So it happened, but not in a waking state, meaning there might have been such a woman, Gomer, out there. I don't know. She could have been a historical personality who was a contemporary of Hosea living in the Northern Kingdom, but Hosea never married her. So if I took a time machine back and visited Hosea after he did all of these things, I would find him alone. 
in his home, lying in his bed or wherever he positioned himself when he experienced prophecy. Gomer was not there because he never married her. These kids don't exist. It's simply a prophecy teaching about Israel's infidelity and its ultimate demise because they're sinning a lot. Okay, Rambam says this very dramatically in source number four. God is too exalted that he, sh- and that he should turn his prophets into a laughingstock and a mockery for fools by ordering them to commit acts of disobedience. This is, my God doesn't do this kind of stuff. Rambam is saying it very bluntly. Even though he's looking at a parak in Tanakh written by a Navi, okay, but my God doesn't do this. The position is similar with regard to the words addressed to Hosea. Take unto thee a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. All this story concerning the birth of the children and their having been named so and so happened in its entirety in a vision of prophecy. This is a thing that can only be doubted or not known by him who confuses the possible things with the impossible ones. In other words, an idiot. Okay, an idiot who believes in things that are impossible would think that God actually commanded Hosea to do this. Now, I'm sorry, but these idiots, I'm sorry to say, include rabbis of the Talmud who plainly take it literally. Uh, Rashi took it literally, and many other great commentaries take it literally too. And Rambam is saying, no offense, but you're crazy. You believe in things that are impossible. You might as well just believe that two and two is five. You have no, this is as contradictory to reason as God having a body part. There's no way that this is true. Okay. So Rambam stakes his claim, not only that he believes that this is meant as a, it was a prophecy that was never experienced in a waking state, but he believes that you are a fool if you take it literally. And Ibn Ezra just says, God forbid, in the beginning of his commentary, God forbid that God would tell Hoshea to do this literally, rather it happened in prophecy. And Radak, he already has two big giants to stand on, so he does that. Okay, well, one of the greatest admirers in the medieval period of Rambam, there were many admirers, was Danis Chakabar Benel. Abarbanel, when he was an old man, I love when historians dig up these letters, because I read his commentaries, I don't read his letters otherwise, but historians look for letters. So some historian found a letter that he wrote to his buddy named Shaul, and Abarbanel was already an older man. He said, you know, when I was young, I read everything, which by the way, he did (laughs) read his commentaries, holy moly. Given that he was very wealthy and obviously had access to the greatest libraries in the world, okay, still, I don't know where he had time to do that. He was a very busy man in his day jobs. And he wrote these amazing commentaries. All the same, he read, he's clearly astoundingly well-read. But he says, now that I'm older, I only read the two greatest books ever written because life is short and you just go with the best when you're old. Those two books are, drumroll, Tanakh, which he counts as one for the purpose of his letter to his buddy, and Rambam's Mora Nebuchi. He considers these the two most valuable things ever written by, you know, for the Jewish people. That's pretty amazing. So that's a pretty adoring comment of, of Arbanel toward Rambam. I say this only for dramatic effect because look what he has to say about Rambam's comment here. Barbanel kicks off his commentary on Hosea and he's well aware that two of the greatest people he admires the most, even Ezra and Rambam, don't take the passage as having happened historically. One must be extremely astonished that these learned authors, i.e. even Ezra and Rambam, How could they advance this kind of sweeping principle and prophetic narrative? If the text testifies that the action occurred, we have no right to depart from its plain sense, lest we interpret the verses incorrectly. Indeed, it is an infidelity and grave sin, or in Hebrew, zimava von plili. He means business here. He's going after his heroes to contradict the plain sense of the verses. 
if this is what we do to them, this disease, which he calls Sarat, and that's not my interpolation here, will spread over all verses and reveal interpretations that contradict the veracity. In other words, sorry, I love Ibn Ezra and Rambam more than anybody, but this is heresy. He doesn't think that they're heretics, but he believes that this type of interpretation challenges the very boundaries of traditional faith interpretation of Tanakh. If Tanakh says it happened, it happened, and I don't care that you don't like it. Okay, so that's what's in, that's what, so, so, Abar, so I have a smile, it's like, okay, so if Rambam, who lived hundreds of years before Abarbanel could hear that, he would say, Abarbanel, no offense, I love your work on, on my Moran Bukhim, sometimes, but here you're just a fool. How, how, can you, how can you believe in a God that would tell you to do that? Abarbanel kicks and screams, he, he says, God is doing this to make an impact on the people, that's the job, Hashem is trying to bring the people closer to Hashem. They're sinning, this is a very dramatic way to illustrate that, okay. That's what's important. It's the mission, not the prophet's honor. But Rambam doesn't care. As far as he is concerned, this doesn't happen. It could not happen. It is literally not possible. Therefore, you must reinterpret. So that's the you're a heretic, you're a fool debate that I was telling you about before. This is an excellent illustration. Another one where this happens is, you know, there's a lot of angels floating around, especially in Sefer Breshit, and they seem to do stuff. You know, one appears to Hagar and shows her a well. Three of them show up and have lunch with Abraham and Sarah, and then two of them move down to Sodom and clobber them. Uh, another angel wrestles with Yaakov Avinu. All, all kinds of angels floating around, and it sounds like, okay, Yaakov is limping after the fight. It sounds like, okay, but if we took a time machine back, we would see a man-like figure wrestling with Yaakov, harming him, but Yaakov somehow beat him. Something along those lines. They all sound like they happen literally. So Rambam has a sweeping principle in his Moran Ruchim. It's not in the source sheets, but you can read all about it. One such place is there you go. Where he just says, as a matter of principle, angels are metaphysical beings. Like Hashem, you cannot see them while you are in a waking state, period. It is not possible. You can never experience an angelic encounter. Okay, in a waking state. In a prophecy or some visionary state, you may. And that's what the Tanakh is describing. So here, Ramban, who also was a great admirer of Rambam, but not today, he's not. This is the beginning of Parashat Bayera, where those three angels show up at Abraham and Sarah's tent, and then they make lunch and all that kind of stuff, and then they go down to Sodom. Ramban says, okay. Let's talk about this for a minute, or more importantly, let's just go on an all-out tirade and attack Rambam's view as, and push it out of the camp of traditional interpretation. He says, first of all, if this were only a vision, why in the world does the Torah give so many details like what was for lunch? Just have a vision that Hashem spoke to Abraham and Sarah saying that you're going to have a baby. That's the point of the story. Who needs all the chesed stuff? It's great if this happened. It's much less significant if it didn't. And how about Lod and his family? Like, what's up? If this is all a visionary experience, how far do you want to go with this? You have two whole chapters that are all with these angels. So this all happened in somebody's vision? Like when the angels took a load and his wife by the hand and yank him out of the city. So all a visionary experience? And then where do you stop? So he says that this view is heresy, basically. And of course, this all happened in a waking state. If we took a time machine back, we would see man-like figures showing up at Abraham and Sarah's tent during the day. They really ate lunch, and they really went down to Sodom and all of that. Okay, so that's our debate. It's all the same thing time and time again. So what we're dealing with here are various debates of 
Science is easier to reckon with, like empirical science, but logic is the real interesting one. Although many Jews to this very day uh, dogmatically think that any scientific data, even empirically proven or at least highly likely data, also should be ignored in favor of the most literal reading of the text, basically adopting the Protestant fundamentalist view. So, which again, they're entitled to do it. It's just that we, it seems like a very strange conflict when there's no need to have the conflict. But reason is a really interesting one. Okay, so in the meantime, that's where we have. So we've talked about science, we've talked about reason. Now there's a whole different category of taking things literally, but here, you know, if you had to make stereotypes, I don't like to stereotype anybody. Uh, you might think that the people who are doing the reason are quote unquote more to the left of a religious spectrum of orthodoxy. And the next category are gonna be people who emphatically won't interpret things literally because they're quote unquote more to the right of the religious spectrum. And they're doing it for a whole different set of reasons, but it ends up the same. Okay, according to the text of Sefer Shmuel, David HaMelech committed adultery and murder, period. There's no other way to read that story. In fact, it's one of the least ambiguous stories in all of Tanakh, and I should know, because I am totally drawn in all of my Tanakh study to ambiguities. That's what I go for. But here there's none. We've tried for thousands of years to find some. There are zero. It is as black and white and open and shut of a story as you can make. Okay, so that's really bad because... I, don't, I love the lesson of Tanakh, he's perfect, everybody's answerable to God, these are excellent lessons. But here we're dealing with the most beloved figure in our entire history, committing two of the worst three sins that anybody can commit. Okay, so that's really, really, really bad. Now it's normally, okay, Moshe Rabbeinu, if you hit a rock instead of speaking to a rock, okay, that should be my greatest flaw too. I can handle it. Like I appreciate that the Torah shows that he made some kind of mistake, Whatever that mistake is, we were just talking about it this morning at Yeshiva University in one of, my, one of my courses there. But whatever the sin was, that should be my greatest sin. That should be your greatest sin. It's, it's still trivial from an objective standpoint. Not so David's. Like now we're really dealing with big bad things, but I hope none of us ever come close to going anywhere near the spectrum of, of sin. All right, that's what the text says. And that's how David, bless his soul, blasts him to bits. And the whole rest of Sefer Shmuel blasts him to bits, saying for the rest of his life, he's going to suffer as his whole family falls apart and the nation falls apart. And at least you and I as readers know, and David as a character knows, some of that is because of him. All right, so that's an excellent lesson. All right, and yet you have sources which often are quoted as the rabbinic view, even though it's really just a rabbinic view, but still it's a rabbinic view. Uh, source number six over here. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani said in the name of Yonatan's name, whoever says that David sinned is merely Eric. Really, it sounds like he said, but all the same, here you have, here you have the statement. For it is said, and David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Which is great, for the record, that verse appears long before the Bathsheba sin, where he was doing great. Right? So at that moment, in the real time of the story, David was flying high. He's, he's definitely a great religious role model, and just a great model in general in every sense. Is it possible that sin came to his hand, yet the divine presence was with him? Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani said in Rabbi Yonatan's name, everyone who went out in the wars of the house of David wrote a bill of divorcement for his wife. Wow, there was a get. And the Talmudic passage goes on to, so it means it wasn't adultery because she was a divorced woman. Okay, and then they justified the murder charges on the grounds that Uriah somehow rebelled against the king. That is a capital offense. To defy the king is a capital offense in Jewish law. But it, you read the story a million times over. You try to look at him as a defiant man, and I think you're going to have a very difficult time defending your case. Okay, so in this case, this Talmudic passage essentially is saying, 
don't take it literally. It cannot be that David really, so it's a different type of logical problem. It's not a philosophical stand on what angels do in a waking state or can God command a prophet to marry a prostitute? Here it's about, can a, a, a leader of this caliber, whose tehillim we recite, whose dynasty we pray for three times daily to be restored, can this man have committed adultery and murder? According to this view of the Talmud, no, he could not have done that. It cannot be, oh, the text says so, too bad. We're going to reinterpret everything because it defies our religious logic. Now, for the record, uh, many other Talmudic passages disagree with this one, and I wish Shiva education would simply teach that, and I think I'd be a happy guy. It's good to learn this view because it is an important view to hear, but it's far from the only Talmudic position on this issue. There are plenty of other Talmudic sources that take for granted that David committed adultery and murder, as the text plainly indicates. Abarbanel should have quoted some of them, but he was satisfied just quoting this very passage with the dot, dot, dotted stuff as well. Abarbanel, who is a very proud descendant of David, by the way, and he is not shy about sharing this fact many times over through his commentaries. Abarbanel uh, goes after David and says, you can't learn like this, like this Talmudic passage. You know, he's consistent, actually. He says, you can't use your logic to reinterpret the text. I'm going to go after Rambam for his Hoshea thing, and I'm going to go after this Talmudic passage for its saying David could not have done that. If the text said he did it, he did it. Natana Navi said, you did it and you're a sinner. He did it and he was a sinner. David says, Khatati Lashem. You could trust him on this. He repented for a sin because he sinned. So it's better to say that he sinned and then repented, which is exactly what the story is about. Okay, so Barbanel is actually the most consistent of our interpreters by saying, look, take a more fundamentalist approach here. Okay. Again, not the same as a Protestant fundamentalist approach, but certainly much more so. Meaning the text should be read as is, with the exception of things like God having a body part. That he fully adopts Ramon's point of view. He understands that that is correct theology, and therefore he adopts it. But unless you are, or poetic license, like the first source that we saw, he would, he would also interpret things along the lines of poetic license. But no way can you apply logic onto the text. You cannot impose it. And Ramon is very, very emphatic about that. So we're left with a totally unresolvable debate where you're still left with, you're a heretic, you're an idiot. So I remember my very first term paper when I was an undergraduate was on the angels that wrestle and eat lunch. And I promise you, you're not gonna believe me. This had nothing to do with my name, okay? I like my name very much. I have the best possible last name. I, I really do like it a lot, uh, but I don't make jokes about it like ha ha ha. I, I, I believe me, I got plenty of it in school from other people, and I just don't like puns in general, that or other ones, but that's just my personal preference. I like the, you know, the witty one-liner that comes out of nowhere. That's more my style. But in the meantime, that's just a personal preference. Uh, but I just thought it was really interesting that angels wrestle and, and eat lunch. And, and so I wanted to see what our commentary said. And that's when I first came across this debate of you're a heretic, you're an idiot. And so I've been with it ever since I was an undergraduate, because it never will go away. The rabbis will continue to be on the page and then will continue to fire each fire missiles at each other because they really flatly disagree with one another on this particular issue. Uh, so what I personally do, and, and you know, just to, to wrap you know, the me piece of the shiur up, is what I do for all of Tanakh is that I read like a fundamentalist and think like a maximalist. Reading like a fundamentalist demands that the snake is talking to Chava and Gan Eden. And read the story just like that. 
Reading like a fundamentalist demands that there are angels all over sacred Breshit having real encounters with real people. And same with talking donkeys and same with uh, David committing adultery and murder. That's what the story says. So that's how you read the story. And that's how you can ascertain the, le- the lessons of the story. You can't ascertain the lessons if you, if you read a get into the David and Bathsheba narrative. It won't work. The point is, no, he committed the worst possible sins any human being can commit, let alone an Israelite and let alone a, one who otherwise is unbelievably righteous. Right? It doesn't matter. He committed these sins. Exactly what a Barbanel says. You should read like a Barbanel. I'm not saying you should do that. I don't preach these things. I just present. And you can do whatever you want to do. Thinking like a maximalist means you're not dogmatically stuck taking those positions literally. Because we have a very wide swath of tradition that doesn't take these things literally. And we all know it. So we never need to be stuck. And that's in the realm of science. That's in the realm of reason. That's in the realm of religious preferences about how you want to read the David and Masheva story and stuff like that, right? If there were a get historically, that's fine. That wouldn't bother me in the least. I wouldn't be asking, well, why doesn't the text just say that? I don't care. I'm interested in what the Navi is trying to teach because that's much more important to me. If in fact, this one lone view in the Talmud is right, that there was a get, so be it. So David is not guilty of technical adultery, but the text wants to teach the lesson that A, the greatest people can commit the worst sins, and B, they are accountable even if they are King David. <laughs> there are no free passes in our tradition. I don't care who you are. God is absolutely fair and just like that. Okay, and in the realm of science, I have a brother-in-law who's a prominent, prominent geneticist at Johns Hopkins University. So we chat. You know, I, I need his scientific know-how for a lot of things, so I don't know science at all. But sometimes it's actually really important to know whether for making health decisions or whether for understanding Torah, it depends on the situation. So in the realm of Torah, he's very quick to point out that it is, he's not allowed to use the word impossible because a scientist is not supposed to use that word. But basically he would use it if he could. Uh, he doesn't consider it remotely possible that one couple that lived 6,000 years ago is the genetic ancestor of all people on this planet. Just from a purely genetic point of view. It would take way longer for the sheer diversity of humanity to manifest. It would never come out of one couple that lived in so short a period before now. So when he told me that the first time, I said, okay, fine, I don't care. I'm still not going to become a racist. Like the point of the Torah teaching that we're all from one couple is to say that there is no superior or inferior race on the planet. If that turns out to not be a DNA fact, okay. Uh, I don't need the Torah to teach me science. I have my brother-in-law for that. I'm much more interested in the message that the Torah teaches, which is one of the most important religious messages by any faith tradition ever, and which still needs a lot of help to, to be promoted today, sadly. Right? But it's a great message. And the same thing is true across the boards with all of these things. If the world is billions of years old, okay, I'm still going to read the Torah as God created the world in six days and stopped on the seventh day, and that's why we have Shabbat. And if you show scientifically A or B, or at least consensus is one way or the other, fine. What you shouldn't do is twist the interpretation of the Torah to match modern science. Don't suddenly say that the Torah itself is teaching about modern scientific theory. That, I think, is a disaster. Books like that sell all the time. People love that kind of stuff. But it's based on a terribly misguided premise that the Torah has to also teach good science or good history or good logic in the sense that a human being thinks about it. No, this is the word of God, and it's coming to teach lessons. I take it absolutely literally, but not dogmatically literally. If there are things that contradict, like Rav Sadia and Ibn Ezra and Rambam and so many others talk about, okay, so be it. That's not going to rattle anything because my faith doesn't depend on a dogmatic literal reading of the Torah because we have the greatest giants of our tradition saying not only must our faith not depend on that, but 
we mustn't take these passages literally. They're much stronger than I would be, I would just say. I take it literally not as a historian or a scientist, but as a person who wants to understand what God wants. But never ever twist the text to match that logic, right? Don't, don't say that there's a get in the Davida Macheva story. There isn't. If, in fact, there is some tradition that there was a get, okay, that's great. But just don't read the story that way. And so that's really what it all comes down to. Tanakh is certainly rooted in history. I have no problem if there are scientific realities that are predicated, you know, Tanakh is predicated on, that's fine. But that's not why we learn Tanakh. We learn Tanakh as the word of God. And so I think that navigating this debate enables us to hear the loud voices of the more literalist camp of our tradition. And in fact, that's how we should read. And then the more non-literalist camp reminds us we're not dogmatically stuck to adopt any of those literal readings when in fact there seems to be a conflict with empirical science or at least some reasonable claim that somebody might make. On that very happy note, I will hit pause right here on me and turn it over to you because that's I think what makes it better. Wow, very insightful. Thank you so much, Thank you. Uh, Rabbi. And I do have a retroactive uh, message that this shoot is dedicated for the Refua Shema of Yanatan Moshe Ben Devorah. May Hashem provide him a full Refua. Um, so on that note, does anyone have any questions? Avi. Um, thank you so much. Oh, quite, I think it's an, an obvious question, but um, I just would see how, how, how you would deal with it. But if you take it to its logical conclusion, sort of this approach that you're, you're suggesting is then why, why is there, there's really no room then for miracles either? the sort of the supernatural miracles that, that the Torah describes, um, you know, why don't we reinterpret? So, or even actually the question really came up originally when you, when you talk about Tehiyat HaMetim, you know, obviously Rambam got a lot of criticism for his approach. And then he said, well, no, I, I do sort of believe in it, but I do, but why should he? That, that goes against all logical reason. We've never seen anyone be resurrected. So, um, why why believe in in that that being physical in any way yes that's a perfectly fair question so Rabbam emphatically believes in miracles but first of all we have to there's a whole different shiur to give i'm going to give you the two-line version of that shiur because that's what you do in this situation uh what is a miracle is it god jumps into nature and the way that i paraphrase it when i'm quoting the view of rashi and ramban it's my words not theirs is god goes and then nature changes and amazing things happen and he directly interferes with something that's going on in history, right? That's what I think most people commonly perceive as a miracle, right? Then there's the whole other camp of so-called rationalists, the Rambams and Rabbags of the world who say, we desperately try to never interpret Tanakh's miracles that way. Rather, they are natural occurrences, however unusual, that are incredibly well-timed, typically predicted by a prophecy, and that's what makes it a miracle, because it's still God's hand in the world, albeit through an unusual natural occurrence or a really big natural occurrence or a really well-timed natural occurrence. So even things like Kriyat Yamsuf need not be interpreted as a right? It can be interpreted as a strong wind, narrow, shallow embankment. What makes it a miracle is, wow, good timing, right? And not only, wow, good timing. So even if you could show this is an occurrence that happens at the Red Sea every 521 years, I just made that number up. 
that, that, that's not a specific reference to anything. There are scientists who try to show that, well, if you have wind blowing at 63 miles per hour in this spot in the Red Sea, you could do it. Honestly, I would not want to walk outside when it's 63 miles an hour winds. I certainly would not want to bring my kids anywhere, let alone across a, a thing that can close on me in any minute when it's at 63 mile per hour winds. I'm not so thrilled about that kind of interpretation, but it's out there. And so when you talk about, is there room for miracles? So first of all, that's a big debate in our tradition. When it comes to Tchiyad team, uh, I would dispute uh, your point about what you and I perceive, obviously. I, I too have never seen somebody come back from the dead, and I, nor do I expect to until the Messianic era. Right? Could happen. You have the, the wacky stories of Eliyahu and Elisha, but those are unusual even by biblical standards. Right? And then there's even Diyun about, did they really bring a kid back to life, or was it the first CPR performed in human history or something like that. You have a minority rabbinic view in the medieval period that even for something like that, where it sounds like about as supernatural as they go, even there you have such a deal. Even Rambam in this case thinks that they really came back to life, by the way, and that they, they were clinically dead first. Okay, the fact that you and I have never seen anything is irrelevant. That doesn't make it irrational. It just means that you shouldn't expect it to happen now. Somebody dies now in our world. Uh, okay, I don't expect that person to come back in a physical form. If you have a dream about that person, that's super cool. That doesn't mean it's prophecy. It could just be that you're thinking about the person. I don't know. Uh, but Chiyad team obviously stands outside of the today's order, which is why even somebody like Rambam wouldn't mind, okay, in the Messianic era, if God wants to do this, and a prophet tells us he will, okay, what am I supposed to tell you? He doesn't reinterpret because it does sound quite literal in Sefer Daniel, which is the only place where it's officially literal, and Rambam can't ignore the fact that rabbinic tradition takes for granted that this is a literal truth. In fact, they staked out their claim on faith boundaries on this particular issue, because there definitely were sectarians in the Second Temple period who did not believe in it. Maybe this was a little longer than a two-sentence answer. It's just too good of a question, but it's still short, right? Okay, so that, 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 that's fine. Okay, so yeah, so they wouldn't see that type of thing, nor prophecy. The fact that in Rambam's time, nobody was a prophet, or the fact that in our time, nobody's in a prophet except in the New York City subway stations. There are lots of prophets there if you've ever been there. I, I used to live in Manhattan. I grew up there, and I spent most of my life there. There are lots and lots of prophets who are all trying to save your soul every stop, and even in, like, big stations. Okay, other than that, uh, you don't expect to see a lot of prophets in the world. So what? If there were prophets once, that wouldn't bother somebody like Rambam at all. I always imagine, I don't know if this is true, that Rambam was bothered how come I'm not, not me? How come Rambam wasn't the prophet? Because he, I'm sure, met whatever criteria he thought should be met, and God obviously did not make him a prophet. So, but why not? So I think that might have been an interesting question to him. But I, that would be another question. And Tchiyad team will ask him. Right? So, so to, to, to get back to your question, uh, that's why our commentators aren't bothered by, even if it is a supernatural event, which it sounds like, because it doesn't relate to our experience at all, uh, in the Messianic era, if God says he's going to do it, and tradition demands that we believe that, and we say Metchayim and the Amidah is a way of saying we really do believe this, is what the community of believers believe. So Rambam will not only believe in that, but he will even incorporate it as one of the 13 tenets of our faith. Would he have done that had the sages of the Talmud not done it first? I don't know. I think that you're still, your question is right. How, how would he deal with it otherwise? But given how the Talmud turns on that one, I think Rambam knows that this is tradition. Which it is. I mean, there's no. I don't think there's any wiggle room there. Okay, good. I mean, it's also interesting to note. That I think the Talmud has this. I forgot where it is, but one of the Talmudim um, 
challenges the, like says that it's insane basically and he says you know we put seeds into the ground all the time and they grow and you know it's basically magic it's the same magic that happens and we accept that also i believe there's this um i think it's the, in the teshuvah and the rashba um so he he sort of challenges the the what's our what our senses can perceive by saying if you would ask aristotle um uh, he you would try to explain to him like a metal box that connects to the clouds and like can connect to every other metal box like he would automatically dismiss it as insane and irrational and like we have to dismiss it and reinterpret it but that's basically a computer like every generation has its phenomena that we you know we don't have access to I think that's an excellent and, and certainly fair point. That's why I always smile when you read about what our Rishanim considered rational back then. So some things we might even agree, but some things are, are completely disproven and off the wall at this stage in the game. And, and that's not their fault. They were doing the best they could with the system that existed then. We're doing the best we can with our systems. Uh, but I don't expect that it will remain constant. I think one of the rabbis who was very ahead of his time in this way was the Kuzari. Kuzari then, who knew medieval philosophy, criticized the so-called philosophers specifically on this point. He said that you guys are treating today's philosophy as though it's always going to be here. So he was able to look beyond his time and say, we shouldn't reinterpret Torah in light of today's philosophy because tomorrow the philosophy might be different, or you and I would call science, because uh, that was part of science back in the day, which is hard for us modern folk to understand altogether. But it was still true then. And so he just said that one day this is not going to be the way that people think. And then all of your enterprises messed up. So I think he, he kept in check, or at least he offered an opinion that I find far more suitable now because we have all these hundreds of years uh, of, of retrospect. It really helps us understand better. You know, he was onto something big. It's amazing that he saw that then. And that was all the rage and he knew it from within. So I think your point is great. Simon? No, Simon, sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, um, you distinguish between fundamentalist in, fundamentalists in Jewish interpreters and Protestant fundamentalism a number of times in your talk. Do you think that in today's Haredi world there's a move towards something more like Protestant fundamentalism, or can one still draw a distinction between, between the attitudes and in the um, attitude to, to science versus creation and evolution and so on. There's no question that you're right. I don't even know if it's a move toward. I think it just is. I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know if anybody's moving in a particular direction. I think there's no question that there are rabbis and segments of the Orthodox community that are, at least in principle, very close to Protestant fundamentalism. I don't want to say that they're identical, but because I don't know, I don't know enough about what either side holds, you know, to the to the nth degree. Uh, but there's no question that there's a lot more of that, meaning it takes it far further than a Barbanel would take it. A Barbanel certainly approached, you know, he was moving toward or, or at least adopting a stand that whenever possible, read it literally. So a, a Protestant fundamentalist pushes that much, much, much further, even with regard to, you know, empirical science, and which, is, which is remarkable. And, and there certainly are those within the so-called Haredi camp that, that, that mimic that. So yes, I, I think that that is true. Uh, I, I think it's fair to read the text that way, but it's unfair to impose it dogmatically that this is therefore true, given that by doing so, uh, willingly, willingly or not, you're calling all of these great rabbinic figures, including people that we all study, uh, heretics, which is, uh, I find, uh, 
disgraceful. One of the, I remember when I started teaching at UGB University, I, used to ask, I still ask for op optional course reviews and most of my students respond and they want, right? When I say wonderful things, I don't necessarily mean positive things. There are things that I find useful, right? Which is all I want. I wanna get feedback so I can learn how to be better next time. That's really what it's all about. Uh, so one time I got a five or six handwritten letter tirade. One particular student took great umbrage at me. Okay, so and it was actually the book of Hosea, funny enough. Uh, what was his problem? That I quoted back then, I used to actually do occasionally a 10-way debate. I've long given up on that just because everybody just got confused. But his problem wasn't that he got confused. His problem was, I mentioned Rashi, and then I quoted nine other views in the spectrum, evaluated each argument, and after a very big battle, Rashi won today. I thought Rashi had the best read, and I explained why. Okay, great. That's what you do in a shiur, right? That's what I thought. And I, by the way, I still think, I just don't give 10 anymore because it's too confusing. So this guy was miffed because how dare I quote anybody other than Rashi because Rashi is always right. I wasted your time. So that was a surprise because how do you respond to this nonsense? So the answer is you go to a Barilan CD-ROM. Nowadays it's a key, but back then I think it was still a CD-ROM. And just type in, you know, search Ramban. I imagine this, this person trusts and respects, and just type in the words Rashi, and then type in Eno Nacham within a few words of that search. And then you get a very fat printout with a lot of pieces of paper. And then you bring it to him and you say, okay, read this. They're all gonna say the same thing. Now here are your choices. Ramban is a heretic or you are wrong. I hope that you will choose the latter, but that's up to you. And so we became good buddies after that. It, it worked by the way. Right, I mean, but it's that—that that to me is the best way to battle this type of thing, and you're never going to win 100% of the time. It's just to say, like, here are your choices: either these views, the Rambam is a heretic, or or you're wrong. And so I prefer the latter, and this is where we modify our lens to say, okay, let's navigate the traditional debates now, which is what I'm trying to do here. But but yes, I, 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 I'm quite aware of the fact that this is a trend within certain circles in our tradition. It always has been, by the way, and I have no reason to think it won't always be until maybe Mashiach comes and, and you know, then maybe we can work these things out better. But, but until then, that will always be a trend. And, that's, and that, I think that's the way the system can go. So all I'm trying to do is show that there's a way to navigate these different views and to keep presenting it as a classic traditional debate, because of course, that's what it is. On that incredibly happy note, uh, I want to thank you all for today, but also really for this three-part series. It's been such a joy just learning of the existence of the Chabura and its impact, you know, both in England, but really around the globe and, and, and what you've been able to do in so short a time. I think uh, all of us suddenly figuring out what Zoom was over the past couple of years certainly came in handy for being able to reach people in different things. The only thing we have to work out as a kink is the when people change clocks differently in different regions. We'll work on that one. Uh, but in the meantime, thank God it all worked out for today. Uh, on that happy note, I want to thank Sina, I want to thank Ohad and all of you for making this possible. And uh, please check out our website, jewishideas.org, you know, for the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals. And, and you will see, we, we have a lot in common, which I appreciate. And hopefully we'll be able to work together in the future as well. On that happy note, I wish everybody a Purim Sameach. And I look forward to learning with you in the future. Take care. Thank you so much, Racham. It was an insightful and amazing uh, series, and we hope to have you on with us very soon again. Thank you Thank so you. much. And I'll, and I'll Thank you very awesome. much. Thank you. Thank you.